You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Since the pandemic began, state and local officials have been racing against time to get homeless Californians into shelter. But after a year of effort, how far have we come? I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program... We're going to hear why there's hope that the momentum built up over the past 12 months could continue and push us a little closer toward ending the homelessness crisis once and for all. Well, the good news is we actually know how to solve homelessness. It's really an issue of resources. But we'll also hear from advocates why they believe there's still an awful lot more work left to be done. We can't have a cookie cutter approach because it just won't work. Quick production note, this edition of In-Depth is an abridged version of KCBS's How To Bay Area podcast. For the full program, check out the How To Bay Area podcast feed later this week. Starting things off, let's get our bearings by taking a look back. When the lockdown orders first went into effect last spring... Advocates quickly began raising alarm bells about what the pandemic could mean for the state's homeless residents, who, by definition, are unable to shelter in place. The response from Governor Newsom came in the form of Project Room Key. We see what's happened to this state as it relates to the issue of homelessness. We recognize our responsibility to do more. It's a program that secured hotel and motel rooms as a way to provide emergency shelter for the state's most vulnerable unhoused people. Governor Newsom highlighted its progress during this press conference last fall. 22,203 individuals, 22,203 individuals have been served by Project Roomkey just in six months. And in addition to those temporary placements, the state has also introduced a plan to buy up those hotel units. This, an effort to provide permanent housing for those who have been relocated. We're doing more than we've ever done in the history of this state, and we are just winding up. I want folks to know that. So the ambitions are far-reaching. But now for a little context. Uh, We just heard that figure from the governor that well north of 20,000 people have received temporary shelter through Project Roomkey. Well, it's a number that represents real progress, but all the same, it's only a small fraction of the 150,000 Californians who make up the state's unhoused population. In the meantime, the number of homeless people who have made it into permanent housing through the program, that's an even smaller number still. So the next question that we're going to tackle on the program, given this historic mobilization that's taken place up and down the state, why haven't we been able to go further in addressing the homelessness crisis? Well, to help us understand the challenges, we're going to turn next to someone who's helped make that mobilization happen. We opened four shelters pretty much within the first two months. Andrea Erton, who heads up Home First Services of Santa Clara County, one of the many shelter groups that dramatically stepped up their services in response to the pandemic. It basically became a 24-7 operation for all of us. 
And it wasn't just a matter of opening up more rooms. For example, with the pandemic raging, there were safety issues to work out. We, I mean, we bought $20,000 in UV sanitizing lights. Then there was the new staff to bring on board. We've hired over 150 people during the pandemic. And finally, they decided to roll out a range of new services too. Now, because of the pandemic, we're providing deep dive mental health services, as well as drug and alcohol services in the pandemics. We're helping deliver food. Offering all these different kinds of support was crucial to make this ramp up work, says Erton, because of course, different people have different needs. We can't have a cookie cutter approach because it just won't work. We've got the majority of people who become homeless are, are only unhoused for a short period of time. They're resourceful and they're able to resolve their situation on their own relatively quickly. But we've got one third of that population who's chronically homeless. And these are the folks who need our support. They need mental health services, drug and alcohol services. They're disabled. They're older and on a set income. So there's not a whole lot that they can do. So as a society, it's really our responsibility to step up and figure out how we're going to care for these people who are the most vulnerable among us. Right. And I, I remember back uh, last spring, there was a, a pretty major debate and uh, different schools of thought in terms of how quickly all these homeless services and, and, and shelters should be ramped up with uh, some folks saying we really don't know what impact this virus is going to have on this vulnerable community. Uh, we need to get this up yesterday. Any day that we waste is a day where lives could be lost. And then there was another school of thought that was saying some of these people really do need a lot of this transitional support. They do need case management and putting them alone inside a room without that support is its own kind of cruel treatment. And and part of what you're speaking to is where those concerns come from. The fact that um, putting somebody alone in a room and, and, you know, giving them the keys and saying good luck is, is not enough for many people. It's not, especially when you take people who have been living for many, many years outside with a group of other people. So encampments, if you've never been to an encampment, they're very social places. Um, People support each other, people thrive together, they survive together. And now you're taking that person and you're isolating them. Not only is that going to have a serious impact on their mental health, it's also going to have a ser serious impact on how they function. And many people would rather risk getting COVID than isolating themselves like that. And that's why one of the things that we provide to many of the folks in hotels and motels is case management, an opportunity to see somebody, to talk to somebody, to receive a warm meal, um, to do your laundry. So the social aspect has been very difficult as it has been for many of our housed people throughout the pandemic. Right, and and so there's, we, we use this blanket term homelessness, but there really is a difference in terms of the sorts of challenges that are facing somebody that is, say, uh, sleeping in their RV or even in their car night after night and somebody who's been homeless for perhaps months or, or even years. And at that point, you know, they lost even the stability of that sort of temporary shelter and ended up uh, in an encampment. So it really does speak to there are different steps along this path. There are, and there's data to prove that. There's significant data that shows if you're able to resolve your, your unhoused situation within 90 days of becoming unhoused, um, you're good. But if you don't, there's a rapid decline that happens after that. And people spiral into all kinds of situations, whether it's anxiety, depression, 
Um, it gets more and more expensive the more you lose everything you've had. Now you've lost all your ID and documentation and you can't prove who you are. So you can't apply for programs. So taking all of these complicated factors to heart and trying not to give, as you said, any kind of cookie cookie cutter solution uh, to any of this, what do you think our listeners should know about what it takes to get people out of homelessness? Uh, obviously, you know, keeping in mind, as we've said over and over again, that it's going to be different for the individuals. But what 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 are some of the solutions that really do seem to work in getting people on a stabler path? Well, it's it's the support. It's it's having an empathetic ear. It's a, a stance of not judging them or blaming them for becoming homeless. We have a lot of people who are older who become homeless because they were caring and living with elderly family members who then died. And as a result, the family home was lost and now they're homeless. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of reasons why somebody can become homeless and we need to not judge them for it. We need to empathetically work with them, figure out what resources they need what living environment might be best for them. Is it going to be an emergency interim housing site where they have their own unit, but there's this idea of congregate living spaces still, so they're very social and they have the 24 seven supports they need so they can thrive? Or is it somebody like you and I, who've been housed for a very long time on our own and can resolve our housing situation on our own quickly with just limited support. And once we get housed, we're gonna stay housed. Yeah. And given all the work that you and others have been putting into addressing this crisis over the last year, how hopeful are you that we are going to continue this momentum? Uh, I mean, when we talk about all these different kinds of support that people need, we are talking about dollars and cents. We are talking about real estate. We are talking about uh, putting homeless shelters in places where, you know, historically many residents have been pushing back. How how long do you think that this resolve is going to hold? You know, I'm a, I'm a serial optimist, and so I can only hope that the work we've done the past year speaks for itself, that the emergency interim housing sites and bridge housing sites we've established are beautiful, they're well run, they're successful at housing people and keeping people safe, and community safe. I'm hoping that the people in these communities will speak up. They'll say, hey, it's worked in my neighborhood. Look, my housing values haven't dropped. Look, the crime hasn't increased in my neighborhood. And the people who were homeless in my neighborhood are now living in a beautiful facility that looks like a little neighborhood. So where we all win. I'm hoping that people can see that. I'm hoping that people can, can see the added investment has actually taking us further to solving homelessness. If they can see that, then maybe they'll be willing to continue to invest, that they'll be willing to continue to want to do the right thing for their unhoused neighbors. Andrea Erton, Chief Executive Officer of Home First Services of Santa Clara County. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, we're broadcasting an episode of the How To Bay Area podcast, discussing how to help more people out of homelessness. It's a question made more urgent by the pandemic and the state-led effort launched in response to the pandemic to provide emergency shelter for the unhoused. This is an abridged version of the podcast. For the full program, look for it in the How To Bay Area podcast stream later this week.
So far on the program, we've been discussing the massive effort over the past 10 months that's gone into setting up all those emergency shelters for the unhoused. And as we've heard, it's an effort that's involved plenty of complex challenges. But of course, there's complex challenges involved in pretty much any effort to address the state's homelessness crisis. It's just on such a massive scale. So for many residents, it can be easy to start to feel like there's nothing that can be done here that this is a crisis that will simply be with us forever. Well, our next guest is going to make the case that it does not have to be that way. Well, the good news is we actually know how to solve homelessness. It's really an issue of resources. Margot Cushel, a UCSF professor of medicine and the director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. For the rest of the program, I'll be speaking with her about what solutions are out there and why she believes we know how to make them happen. People who have significant behavioral health disabilities, people who struggle with mental health problems or substance use problems, we have an extraordinarily effective model that has been proven time and time again to work really well for this population. That's something called housing first. What it really means is um, housing first, permanent supportive housing. What that means is subsidized housing so that people um, don't need to pay more than 30% of their income on the housing with voluntary supportive services. So these are things like case management, um, drug and alcohol services, mental health services, other vocational services, other services that are offered on a, on a voluntary basis. This type of arrangement has been shown to be really effective at housing those who have the most significant behavioral disabilities. Just about everyone can be successfully housed. Many other people who are homeless really just need some financial help. It's not a question of a lot of bells and whistles or substance use counseling or anything like that. Really what they need to to be housed successfully is simply housing that they can afford. To do that, um, vouchers can play a very big role. And so if um, we can um, create, get a federal voucher system where they exist, that will help tremendously. Right now, only one in four households across this country who meet the very strict requirement to receive one of those vouchers actually gets one. It's a very limited resource. If we could free those up, that would help a lot. Some people may just need a short-term boost. There are some people who really need a first month's rent, last month's rent, you know, some moving expenses, and they can get a fresh start and be housed again. I will be honest that it's going to be very hard to solve this problem if we're stuck in this figure of 23 units of of housing available and affordable for every 100 ELI household. It's a little bit of a cruel game of musical chairs, and we do really need to work to protect, preserve, and produce more deeply affordable housing. That is going to take, you know, at the local level, changes in zoning, but at the state and federal level, it's going to take sufficient resources to allow those those housing to be preserved, produced, and um, protected. Mm, Yeah, so a lot of what you're talking about uh, really does agree with what we were hearing earlier in the program from Andrea Urton with uh, Home First Services, again, talking about the many uh, wraparound services that her uh, her agency is making sure to provide to people that have homes so they get those sorts of targeted supports that you're talking about addressing uh, the various needs that people uh, find themselves in. Um, I want to talk about uh, a study that you co-authored last year looking at the effectiveness of uh, one of these intervention programs 
programs. Uh, it's known as Project Welcome Home. It uh, housed a number of people in Santa Clara County over a number of years and uh, ultimately found that 86% of participants that received housing uh, were able to stay in the housing throughout nearly the entire study duration. So really striking figures in terms of uh, the effectiveness of giving people homes and uh, seeing that they keep homes. Uh, on the flip side, complicating the picture a little bit, um, folks in the program also uh, still suffered from uh, many of the same problems that they were suffering from on the street, whether that was uh, frequent uh, ER visits or whether that was stints in jail or or in some cases, uh, some of the participants uh, even uh, died. Um, wondering if you could speak to what we should take away from that finding that uh, housing did uh, housing in and of itself, although I, I know that these people did receive services as well, but uh, housing and, and the services were not enough to uh, eliminate some of these uh, other challenges. So the really important thing to know about Project Welcome Home is that that project was really designed to find the most medically and behaviorally complicated people living unsheltered or unhoused in Santa Clara. We really went out and aggressively looked for the people who were the most troubled, who had the most complications. It wasn't just people. It was like the top Mm. 5% or less Mm -hmm. of the most medically and behaviorally complex individuals. We basically, that program was really designed to try to house the folks who people are most likely to say, oh, they can't be housed. Mm -hmm. You know, we We intentionally looked for people who had multiple trips to the psychiatric ER, multiple trips to the medical ER, multiple Mm. hospitalizations, multiple stays in jail, and we found them. And what was amazing about that program is basically everybody who we approached. And when I say we approached, I mean we had flags in the system. So the next time they showed up in the ER, someone approached them in the ER. The next time they went to jail, as they were leaving jail, somebody approached them. We really met them wherever they were at and just said, hey, do you want a chance to get housing? And basically every single person said yes. Of those who were um, randomly selected to get into housing, 86% of those, and remember, these are the most medically and behaviorally complex people, actually successfully got in housing. And once they got into housing, they stayed in housing. I think the truth of the matter is, is that housing um, is definitely the best medicine. But if you're selecting people whose health has deteriorated to the point where they are already, you know, facing serious um, health conditions and people who struggle with serious mental health and substance use conditions, you might not immediately um, extinguish their need for the emergency room care or others. But what you do do is you give them housing and dignity and a chance to stabilize their lives. Um, You know, one thing that we find, for instance, with the emergency room is when you get people into care, many of these folks, yes, they've used the emergency room often, but many of their other needs haven't been met. And so sometimes when you bring folks into care, you might save some of those visits that, you know, were just um, just because of the chaos of their lives. But actually, maybe a nurse came to visit them and found that they were having chest pain. The right thing to do, of course, is to send them to an ER. So I don't want people to think 
think that you take people who have been incredibly sick and struggling and suffering for years and years, and they get into housing and suddenly, you know, everything heals. I wish that were the case, but it wasn't. But I think the important point stands is that we found the most challenging folks in Santa Clara County, and 86% of them were housed within two months and they stayed housed. So I think the important point is basically everybody can be housed. Um, And I think that's really the critical point here. For most people who have fewer disabilities, they require a lot less services and the proportion comes much closer to 100%. So just thinking through some of the challenges here, and I just want to channel perhaps some of the listeners that we have that uh, are are coming at this with a somewhat more skeptical perspective. Um, I, I can imagine some of them would be thinking, you know, when we talk about this housing first approach, you know, you want to make sure that people have housing so that they can address uh, these other issues in their life. Um, I think what comes to mind for a lot of people is if when somebody is given a home and they're still struggling uh, through mental health challenges or they're still struggling through uh, drug abuse challenges or alcohol abuse challenges, are you really uh, solving the underlying uh, problem. And I know that there's this debate within the homelessness policy world of whether you uh, do house, uh, housing first or services first, whether you have to solve that underlying uh, addiction problem or mental health problem. I- I'm wondering, what would you say to that person who is struggling with that issue of, you know, when we're thinking about how to provide support as 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 a society, does that complicate the picture if uh, somebody given housing is uh, still ultimately going to be struggling with some of these issues? I want to be clear here that um, while people may feel like there's a debate, anyone who looks at the evidence, anyone who looks at um, the real data and the real evidence, there is no debate. And there hasn't been a debate for 20 or 30 years. There is absolutely no question that housing first is is well supported by the literature. You get 80, 90, 95% of people housed as opposed to 5, 10, 15% of people housed when you demand services first. I think the other thing that's... And we're talking about, uh, crucially, we're talking about preconditions. You know, you, you can only have this housing if you are sober or something else. Preconditions. Absolutely. We did for the first, um, you know, first 15 or so years of the modern era of um, homelessness. That was the philosophy. Mm-hmm. The stepwise, you sort of needed to prove your worth and then eventually you could get housed. What we found is some people were housed and sober, but most people remained homeless. There's no question in anyone's mind who actually studies this issue and doesn't look at it with moral, you know, with a moral judgment or a religious idea or something. You know, I believe I'm a scientist. I believe in science. Mm -hmm. The science on this is crystal clear. Um, I think that, um, you know, from my mind as a physician, I look at mental health and substance use as um, diseases, challenges, often a response to trauma. Many people struggle with substances as a response um, to deep trauma as a sort of reason, you know, as a way to cope with um, terrible experiences. What I don't look at them as is signs that people are amoral or immoral. I think, I, you know, I like to say that if you look at the history of medicine, in the medieval times, we thought epilepsy was thought to be people possessed by the devil. And with our modern viewpoint, 
we laugh at that and we think, why would they think that? I am convinced that in the next 50 or 100 years, what I hope is that people are going to look back at our sort of moralizing way and looking at people with mental health and substance use as sort of possessed by the devil and think, what were they thinking? Mm. So we don't force people to live in the street because they have cancer. Mm. We don't, we should not force people to live in the street as some sort of punishment for having a disease like a mental health disability. That doesn't make any sense. The vast majority of people with mental health disabilities and substance use challenges are housed, and there's nothing in those um, those problems that means you can't be housed. But I will say the flip is true. Mm. As a physician, it is almost impossible for me to address someone's health, whether it's medical problems, mental health problems, substance use problems, if they are unhoused, because people's first instinct is to survive. That's sort of that's what makes us human. And so when we basically force people to be homeless or when people are homeless, it's very difficult to address those issues. When people don't have to worry about where they're going to lay their head, when they don't have to worry about being attacked by a stranger, when they don't have to worry about having sexual assault, you know, just because they're out and exposed, when they don't have to worry about how hungry they are or that the rain is coming down, they actually have the headspace that we can begin to engage them in treatment. Just because we can't cure all forms of cancer doesn't mean that we don't treat cancer. Just because not everyone with a mental health disability can be, you know, completely restored to full health doesn't mean that we don't treat them, those individuals with dignity, with love, and that we don't try to help them heal as much as possible. Uh, channeling perhaps uh, another thought that may be going through the heads of uh, many Bay Area residents, when we talk about some of these solutions and talk about some of these interventions, uh, it certainly is the case that a lot of money has been funneled towards this problem already in the Bay Area. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars throughout the Bay Area uh, in, in, in multiple cities over, over uh, you know, years and years and years. Uh, why have the efforts that we have been putting towards this problem so far not ended homelessness or at least not stopped the massive increase that we are continuing to see. Right, because we haven't addressed the fundamentals. Because mm. as long as you have only 23 units of housing affordable and, and available to every 100 extremely low-income households, people are going to be homeless. As long as wages for low-wage workers stay, you know, stay, um, have not risen while income inequality has grown and housing prices have grown, uh, we will not solve this. This problem is at a much larger scale than we've been putting resources in. And to be honest, I feel like local governments always get blamed for this problem and local money goes into it and then people are shocked that we can't solve the problem. The federal government could make investments in housing that could end this crisis really quickly um, because for them, compared to you know the expenditures on other issues, it's really not that big. But the issue is overwhelming for local governments to try to solve on their own. It seems like we've spent a lot of money, but we really have not even begun to chip away at the at the scope of the crisis in terms of the stagnant wages um, and the incredible lack of low-income housing. If you've ever played musical chairs as a kid, by the end of the game, there's only one kid still standing. I like to think of our housing shortage like that game. We've got 17 chairs for 100, I'm sorry, 23 
23 chairs for 100 households, it's not a surprise. Some will sit and, you know, some will double up and uh, and sort of make do for a little while, but eventually some people are going to be standing. And that's what we have with our homelessness crisis. And so, and so ultimately, when we talk about the scale of this problem and the sorts of things that we can do to address the problem, if we know the solution, is it really just a matter of mustering the money that we need? Is it really just a matter of getting more uh, vouchers into people's hands, getting more public housing out there, getting more uh, uh, emergency and, and uh, transitional shelters uh, available to people so that they can uh, get back onto the path towards housing? I mean, and, and if so, if it is just a matter of uh, taking that approach... How far away are we right now from meeting the level of funding that we'll need? I mean, in San Francisco, as we've mentioned, there's uh, Measure C that is going into place, and that's going to be uh, a, a tax on uh, large businesses in the city, bringing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars towards uh, homeless uh, services uh, each year. Uh, how, how close are we to getting to the level that you're saying we need? I think that, um, unfortunately, I wish I could say that any of these measures would solve it. And unfortunately, these problems are deep crisis of income inequality, of racism, and of a shortage of affordable housing sort of came from policy decisions made over decades and sort of um, philosophies made over decade. And it's going to take a lot of work to undo them. There's no easy fix here. But this is not rocket science. We need to be able to create the housing. It is notoriously difficult to create housing in California. We're going to need to upzone some areas that have been downzoned, and we're going to need to get a lot of support from the federal government and from the state government. Um, braid it together with these local um, local initiatives to raise enough money and change our practices enough so that we can actually live in the society that we all want to live in, where everybody, every child goes to sleep at night in a home, every adult goes to sleep at night in a home, where losing your job or getting sick does not mean that you need to sleep on the streets. Margot Cushel, a UCSF professor of medicine and the director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. This has been KCBS In-Depth with a special abridged presentation of the How To Bay Area podcast. For the full program, check out the podcast stream where it'll become available later this week. That's it for now. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.